0: Can you all hear me? So, tonight I was going to talk about the parami of patience, and I still am gonna talk about it, but I started reading this wonderful book by one of my very favorite teachers, Ajahn Suchito, and it was so beautiful, just about, you know, what, it was an excellent characterization of the battle that we're under. And I don't know about you, but I definitely feel like I am in the battle. So I wanted to just talk a, li- a little bit about that. And um, I want to start off with a few, um, with a little bit about the story about the night that the Buddha became enlightened. We probably many of us or most of us probably know that story. He was um, hanging out with some aesthetics, six aesthetics, it said, uh, people, I guess they were mostly men who felt like the way to liberation or to freedom was to totally deny. Um, Probably one way to say it was they denied that we're part of nature. So he would uh, not feed himself and not drink water and just really try to remove himself from anything associated with being human. He wanted to just, I guess he thought he could starve or thirst himself to liberation or something like that. And then he, um, he was almost dead, he was just really couldn't, didn't have any energy at all. And then he remembered a time when he was a small child sitting out in the field, I think, where his father and the workers were working. And he we- remembers this time of just incredible peace and incredible happiness. And he thought wow, maybe this you know strict aestheticism isn't going to work for me. And right at that time, this young, they say that she was, you know, a very young woman, Sujata walked by and she saw um, the Buddha and just her heart was just so sad because he looked like he was about to die. So Sujata offered uh, the Buddha some um, sweet, rice water, I guess it was, some nourishment. And he drank it, he tasted it, and it was so delicious. And he drank it all down, he just, you know, drank it all down, and he felt so much better. And he said, you know, I'm part of nature, why am I denying? You know, why maybe I should think about using... Um, these conditions that I have, I've got this human body and it gets thirsty and it wants to eat and it wants to be clothed and it wants to be housed and maybe sometimes it even wants medicine and he made a decision that he was going to actually not suppress anything anymore. He wasn't also going to follow a lot of his desires and thoughts but he also wasn't going to suppress them So, in a way, part of the middle path was born in that moment. So he started meditating. He felt refreshed and happy. He had had Sujita's offering. And then we know what happened. He was overcome by the floods, the floods that we are all contending with in this very room. He was overcome by the floods. And he personified them. And uh, this is how the story goes about what happened with the floods. So the floods came and overwhelmed him. And they pulled his mind this way and that way. And uh, this is what the floods said. Why sit here under a tree at night alone, wasting your youth? How can anything good come of this painful and impotent sojourn? Why not trust life? Learn as you go through its joys and marvels and challenges. It's late. Take a rest and see what the morning brings. The seeker unified his mind around his resolve and looked for a clear response. It took him a while, but eventually one came. I know you, demon. You're Mara, the deceiver, the voice of death. You're the one who has kept me chasing delusions and running from shadows through life after life and death after death. This time I'm not budging. You won't shift me with your doubts and promises. You know nothing, and you'll get nothing out of sitting here. Death will sweep you away like a twig in the flood, said Mara. And even before that comes, I can call on forces of fear, loneliness, and longing that will drive you to despair and send you running for comfort. You just have one feeble body and a heart awash with confusion. How do you think that your sitting still is going to conquer me? Do we ever think that? My body is mortal, said the Buddha, but I'm not relying on that. My heart may sense fear and craving, but I'm not taking a stand on that. I have an inheritance of many lives spent in working for purity, both of conduct and of mind. And sitting still, alone, unarmed, I also can command a tide that will check your flood. I stand on being at peace with whatever arises. I wanna read that again. I stand on being at peace with whatever arises. Here now, I call this very earth to witness that I am ready, ripe with all the perfections that are needed to sweep you and your demon host out of my heart. With those words, the seeker focused his attention deep deep within his embodied awareness. In that calm center beneath personality, beneath thoughts, and beneath moods, he touched into a rich ground. A response was not long in coming. His firmness grew as he recollected the huge store of virtues and resolves that he had enacted over many lives. And in his mind's eye, the the very spirit of the earth rose up like a goddess, The earth rose up like a goddess, wrapping her long hair into a braid. She twisted it and wrung out of it a great fountain of water that swept through the darkness of the grove. His heart brimmed with confidence and clarity, radiated around him. Mara and his entire host had dissolved like mists at dawn." After allowing the clarity and joy to wash their refreshing tides through him, the seeker resumed his introspection. He began recalling the results of acts based on kindness, patience, resolve, and more. The deeds of many lifetimes. He reviewed the processes that determined everyone's lives, the pressures, turmoil, and pain that accompanied them, And finally, how they can be put to rest. By the time that dawn had arisen, a deep, unshakable peace had settled within him. He had discovered the release from the grip of death. I just so loved that when I read it. And another place in the suttas the Buddha said, you know, people would say, can I do this? I don't think I can do this. Can I really be free? Can I really find peace and contentment that isn't based on something external to this heart-mind process? Can I really find a peace that isn't dependent on the world? And he said, yes, of course you can. If you couldn't find peace, I wouldn't ask you to look for it. He had so much confidence in every single one of us. And all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas since that also have told us that. You know, we were talking earlier today about who we think has been enlightened in our lifetime or close, you know, to our lifetime. And interesting, most of them have been women. It's kind of (laughs) cool. Like Deepa Ma had a very high level of enlightenment, and Ki, this um, lay practitioner in Thailand, and another lay practitioner in Thailand as well. So it is possible. And... um, it's good to understand what we're up, up against. And I really loved the way this story characterizes very clearly what the floods are. It's this image of the floods, of us, you know, having a strong intention to get through the, fu- the, the uh, floods. And there are four floods. And as we go about our life, and particularly on retreat... This is when you can really see clearly what the floods are. In Pali, they're also called asawas, the outflows, the things that really are the root of our um, greed, hatred, and delusion of our ignorance. And there are four floods. There's the flood of sensuality, the flood of becoming, of creating ourselves over and over again in the moment. The flood of views and the flood of ignorance. And we can get a sense of, even the term for this, floods, it's a sense of being overwhelmed or swept along by something that we have absolutely no control over or that we actually even believe. In the broadest sense, it refers to the sorrow, lamentation, and despair of dukkha. The sorrow, lamentation, and despair. Or to even existential dukkha that isn't necessarily associated with something that's happening in the moment, but just a deep sense of disease and dissatisfaction that I think many of us feel on a pretty regular basis. The floods, asawas. And on retreat, they can also refer to the five hindrances. You know, trying to swim past the breakers of the floods. Of, you know sleepiness and torpor and restlessness and worry and aversion, not wanting what's happening or greed for something, wanting something else to happen or just a profound doubt is like, is this, was that Buddha guy for real? Am I doing this right? Are those teachers giving us the real story? Do they know what they're talking about? You know, that's how parts of the flood show up for us when we're practicing and retreat is actually an excellent opportunity to see our own individualized personalized floods because you know as our minds wander as these things arise related to some stories of our life you know this happened to me as a kid and I wasn't able to get this but I got this and this is who I am right now All of those thoughts are actually related to what the asa was underneath them. They're a deep, very deep, mostly unconscious flood that's informing what those thought patterns are when we relax and just allow them to emerge. These four floods. your currents underneath a bubbling stream of mental activity and we might mainly experience this as just uncontrollable wandering samsara and we don't really feel like we have any control over it at all. It doesn't seem, and, it, and we believe most of what it is. We absolutely believe it. And um, that's the hugest cause of our suffering right there. And then sometimes when we're on retreat here, and I've heard it from many yogis, we actually get a reprieve from that when we actually feel like something else has happened. Like today, I hope it's okay that I say this. Today, this wonderful yogi, just for the heck of it, invited the devas in. Said, tell me what to do, devas. Maybe overcome by floods and just felt the really deepest sense of ease and connectedness, like All of it went away and there was a sense of just being one with the universe. A sense of awe. Like, wow. There is available a sense of ease and connectedness. A sense of well-being that isn't dependent on external conditions. And that's one of the most profound (coughs) teachings of the Buddha. I have a bad cold, excuse me. (coughs) 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 That freedom and a sense of... (coughs) Comfort or well being can't ever be dependent on external conditions because they're pretty crazy. Do you have a? Yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) How sweet, how generous. She's offering me a cough drop. (laughs) I'll take it. Thank you. Deva. (laughs) Deva appeared. So while we're here, I think many of us have, have, get, have gotten that sense of just relaxation and ease and interconnectedness and feeling like we're part of something bigger. A sense of awe. Of greater breadth and depth. And it makes us realize that these ordinary states, these flooded states of sensuality and becoming and <coughs> views and ignorance, they're not, they don't need to be the norm. They don't need to be what is normal for us. <coughs> So what's the first one, the flood of sensuality? And these are all of the thoughts and desires and clinging and craving we have associated with our five senses. Things that we want to see or that we don't want to see. Things that we want to smell or we don't want to smell. Taste and hear and just the body sensations. And I see this in this heart and mind all the time. I told all of the teaching team and the managers that I filled the refrigerator in the teacher room with mochi and popsicles. (laughs) You know, that is my craving for some comfort and taste. I think a lot of us might have that in sugar or certain foods that we have to have. And that's, you know, we get fooled, we get fooled to think that there is some real comfort in that. <coughs> you know, and these floods of central desire come as gentle, you know, gentle cravings for a mochi that we'll get, which has probably not as much negative karma, but it's got some negative karma for sure. And then there are other... maybe just a little bit of negative karma, (laughs) a lot of sugar, you know. But they provide some comfort from immediate angst. And, you know, we actually play that out with other things too, with drugs and alcohol and other things that, you know, we have this desire to just calm the floods, and that happens. And, you know... Um, under this category, too, is just that incredible craving for love. And I think for, (coughs) I have this idea that for women it's like for romance and men it's for sex, but I'm sure that, you know, there's more difference within those categories and across those categories, if you know what I mean. And, um, And, you know, other gendered people as well. There's this craving that somehow sex or relationship is going to you know get rid of um, this desire this clinging and craving that we have and we believe that the conditioned experience of sensuality of um, any of those sense stores is somehow going to provide us with some lasting sense of contentment or relief And, you know, if we really look back over our experience, we all have pretty definitive proof that that's not true. We all know that you you can't only just have one mochi. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you have romantic love and great sex, and, you know, that actually, with a particular person, that might dissipate a, a... dissipate and weaken but because we've watered the seeds of you know thinking that that really is a wholesome and legitimate pleasure we go out and try to seek that you know over and over and over again and I'm not saying that it's not it can be incredibly wholesome and it can be you know watering seeds of goodness in us it can but to think that that somehow is going to quell this sense of craving and uh, give us a sense of lasting contentment, it's not going to happen. And I think we all have the experience of knowing that. I was so happy. I recently got engaged. I'm so old and I got engaged. How cool is that? And, um, you know, but I know that my partner, who's really so wonderful in so many ways, he's a conditioned thing. LAUGHTER And no conditioned thing is going to bring that what the Buddha talked about. (laughs) He might help along the way, get me there, but he is not going to be the source of that ultimate contentment or that ultimate sense of just (sighs) the end of craving. It's not going to happen. And i got to tell you, for those who are single... (laughs) One of the things that was so attractive about him to me, and I think this is important, was his sila. We all know that the Eightfold Path consists of sila samaripanya, which is ethical conduct, mental training, you know, training our mind and wisdom. And sila is that ethical conduct. And he had such great ethics. I knew that I would never have to worry about, you know, infidelity or things like that. And it was such a relief. And that's what really made me fall in love with him was his sila. For those looking out there, you might check the sila when you're dating. (laughs) But that's the flood of sensuality. And just, you know, desire, thinking that somehow desire for things, you know, how... How many times have we just gone to the internet to shop to relieve some, you know, sense of craving, thinking that's going to bring us something, but it never does. So that's one of the floods, is the sensuality flood. I love the second flood; it's the flood of becoming, because that one is something that I think we're all seeing right now. Do you notice how much, uh, what you're experiencing when you're not in deep. Uh, meditative metta concentration, which min- I'm sure all of us are, when you're not in that, how much just, you know, the flood of relaxed thought is us telling ourselves who we are over and over again. You're this, you're that, you've done this, but you a- were able to do that, but you weren't able to do this, and you weren't able to do that. I mean, This is the lives we lived. Why do we have to tell ourselves over and over again who we are? What is that about? And actually, that is the way that we actually create this delusion. It's a delusion of a solid self. It's created over and over again in those moments of identity creation in our thoughts. It comes in thoughts. It comes in emotions. And actually, I think it even comes in an energetic field of clinging just to, you know, I am. You know, the Buddha had really brilliant teaching specifically about this, about how becoming happens. You know, one of my favorites is this... Um, Sutta about conceit, how conceit works. And we all think, oh yeah, conceit, thinking I'm better than. Uh-uh. <laughs> it's not just that. The Buddha was so brilliant. He realized that identities were also created of I am better than they, him, or her. But they're also equally uh, strongly created in I am worse than he, him, or they that is an aspect of conceit, of creation of self. That is an absolute delusion. It is a delusion. And um, there's actually excellent uh, sutta references about the way that conceit and eyeing and mying is created. In fact, the Buddha taught that there's four origins or foundations of conceit or eyeing and mying. I am this, this I am. One is birth conceit. And all of these are very unconscious and very invisible. You know, these are the asawas, the unconscious forces of delusion that are informing our lives. Birth conceit. And, you know we, know, we know how that plays out in 2017 Earth. Just the stratifications of, you know, who's valued and who isn't. Wow. I always like to refer to one that's impacted my family and I, the doctrine of discovery. I'm sure many of you m- might know that it was a 15th century papal edict that said when Europeans travel the world and if they went to so-called foreign lands if the people that they met didn't believe in one God you could kill them or enslave them it was okay. We don't even realize how much that birth mana informs our life in this very moment. The other conceit, and I've got a lot of that. I am forever decolonized my inferiority conceit of you know being born a mixed race, native woman of color and being old. I see that mana arising all the time. And with mindfulness, that's why, uh, you know, Manisikara, sampajanya. the mindfulness is so precious because we can see that arising in how we're constructing ourselves. And we don't need to do anything but see it with sati, with mindfulness. That's all we need to do. Because when we see it with sati, wisdom takes care of it. Wisdom takes care and uproots that delusion. All we need to do is see it. And then the other conceit is Panya conceit. I've got so much of this conceit of education or what you know. Wow. (laughs) I'm a college professor, that's what we deal in. I recently had to put my package together to go up for full professor. And it was like so, it was a hazing ritual. It was. It was absolutely a hazing ritual. And it was a construction of superiority conceit. It's like, you better prove you're superior to everybody else. You know, that's so accepted and expected in our culture. I mean, our, actually, our economic system is based on you believing that you're not good enough, so you better buy this thing. It's based on that. We get that message over and over and over again. There's a lot to say about becoming and conceit. And then there's uh, floods of views. I love this one, the flood of views. And you know, the views are anything that we think is absolutely true. Anything that we think is absolutely true is a hardened view. Someone went up to the Buddha once and said, I don't believe in any views and I'm not impacted by views. And you know what? The Buddha said, that, my friend, is a view. (laughs) So that's why we we want to empty our cup. We want to not know things. We want to let go of views because views are a part of the flood. And we can see that. I mean, how many of us are just tormented by the current political system in either direction, I think, you know, just tormented by the view of it should be like this and not like that. So much torment, so much suffering. So, and then all of these floods, all of the floods, these underlying unconscious asavas that influence how we're thinking and how suffering shows up for us very individually. I mean, all of that is played out in the life and intergenerational history of each individual heart-mind process, right? That plays out very differently and we can see those floods arise and the continued creation of ourselves and becoming and desire and views. And underline all of those is ignorance, is just not seeing the truth The truth of that no condition thing is gonna give us any lasting satisfaction. Give up the desire, the chance, or the attempt to get any lasting satisfaction from that. Give it up, because it's not gonna happen. And then the ignorance of not realizing that things are changing all the time. You know, we have these notions of who we are, How could that be who we are when the next minute we're something else? It is so amazing. And I know we're all seeing that on retreat. That's one of the most wonderful parts of retreat is just seeing the impermanence of the I am this and this is mine. It is changing all the time. And the Buddha taught that one of the biggest uh, ways out of the floods is seeing impermanence. So you if you get a chance notice how much things are changing it's an excellent important wisdom factor to be connected to. And then the third you know delusion or core ignorance is that we are somehow separate beings that are responsible for our own happiness or whatever or could be responsible and get happiness externally. You know, I think of, you know, we're practicing metta here, which has so many positive qualities. Um, And it's an, an entryway into that deep sense of love and intimacy. But the other way into that deep love and intimacy is just letting go of the delusion of separation. That's the other way into it. Letting go of the delusion of separation. So I know I've said individually and I think in the hall a few times, I had one of the best retreat experiences just last November. Here I am judging again, right? But it was pretty cool. (laughs) I sat with this, um, he's a British monk, a working class British guy who like in his 20s moved to Thailand and said, man, I'm gonna learn how to meditate. And he became an, a monk under in the, in the Thai forest tradition under Ajahn Chah. And you know, I've been practicing for a long time, like 35 years. And it, you know, I wasn't a college professor who, oh, mindfulness, that looks interesting. Maybe that would be helpful. I was a person who was practicing mindfulness from age 27 and plumped up my gray matter and when, when I actually started to go to school, people said, oh my God, you're kind of smart. Why don't you stick around? You know, it was the other way. And I can honestly say that the Dhamma and practice is the source of every happiness in my life. It is the source of every happiness in my life. So, where was I going with this? <laughs> So what are we trying to cultivate in order to combat the combat the floods? How do we address the floods? We address it with sati, with mindfulness, with clear comprehension, with wisdom. And we also Um, we build a, how did Ajahn Suchito put it? Oh, yeah, what I was telling you about Ajahn Suchito. That's what it was. I was sitting across from him on on the interview. I've been practicing a long time, and I had a really extraordinary retreat. So I was sitting across from him, and I started crying a little bit. And um, I was looking down, and all of a sudden, I felt like someone had wrapped a blanket of love around me. And I was going, wow, what is that? And I looked up, and he looked me straight in the eye. He was sitting across the room. He's going, yeah, we're feeling it. <laughs> you know, he was pervading meta, and it was a physical sensation that surrounded my body. It was the coolest thing. I felt it. and And then whenever I would interview with him or the presence that he brought to a room is you know, I felt more loved and more seen than with anyone who actually knew who I was. I think I talked about that the other day. That, um, you know, um, when he was talking to me, he would say, oh yeah, Bonnie. (laughs) (laughs) So he didn't really know me, but I felt so loved because I think there was so little of him there, so little of this identity and that identity. There was so much of the collective presence and that is a sensation of deep intimacy and love that's what is there when there's not a lot of eyeing and mying. you know that's the other way to feel that meta because that is what is in the collective awareness you know that deep desire for um to be free from suffering and for happiness and when when you think about it that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the understanding how not to suffer. How is that not compassion? So that was really meaningful to me to see that. And so you know, how do we get to that place? We get to that place by knowing how to hold those floods. And how we hold them is with um, an understanding of the Four Noble Truths, and so we know what those are, and with developing the paramis. There are the paramis, I think, right? Temple told me the paramis. <laughs> he was helping my pronunciation, <laughs> which might be a view. I don't know. <laughs> but the um, paramis, and you know, the Buddha, and actually. I think the the idea of the paramis and the development of them as very specific factors that we are all trying to cultivate came after the time of the Buddha. But they are part of the Abhidhamma, actually. And they're very very much a part of our tradition. And we know what those 10 paramis are, right? Those 10 paramis are generosity, Morality, renunciation, discernment or wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, kindness, and equanimity. So it's wonderful. In this week together, we are all practicing, getting the strongest sati that we can get. Because we all know that in its concentration function to do metta or um, uh, equanimity practice, to do um, loving kindness or equanimity practice, part of its function is to increase samadhi, right? To increase concentration and collectedness of mind. And um, what that does is when we don't uh, allow the expansion of our energy, our human energy systems here, by excessive thinking or distraction, all of that is dispensing energy. Energy is being lost. When we collect that energy by staying focused and not allowing a lot of those distractions, what that does, it does a number of things, but one of the things it does is that it magnifies our sati, it magnifies the lens of mindfulness. So we see much more clearly what this mind-body process is doing. I love to say that mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness, for the knowledge system of intuitive awareness. And it is a knowledge system. It's collecting knowledge by just watching what's happening and not with a lot of conceptual overlay. Not with saying, oh, this is happening. Maybe I should do this or that. You know, just coming back to the direct knowing of what's happening in this mind and body process without conceptual overlay, without thinking, you know, one thing that Ajahn Tsuchito said to me, you know, once he figured out what my name was, but he loved me. But you know, this is how we can love everyone. We can love each other this much. It's such a incredible, wholesome aspiration, and it feels really good too. Bonnie, you know what your problem is, Bonnie? You don't give enough authority to Chitta. You need to give more authority to Chitta. So, when you're sitting there thinking this and that and naming this and that, you know, just say, Thank you, but not now. Thank you, but not now. I love you, but not now. I'm doing something else now. I am engaging my intuitive awareness knowledge system, my other knowledge system. And to do that, we need to let go of the thinking and just, he said, this is how he told me to engage it. You know, collect the data with the mindfulness, just watch. You know, you can use a word now and then to keep you connected, but not a lot of thinking and conceptual overlay. And he would say, just ask Chitta, what is needed now? Ask your heart, what is needed now? Let's all do it. Let's ask our hearts right now. What is needed now? And don't let our minds answer it. Chitta, I love you, Chitta. What is needed now? What is needed now? Or if you don't, if you're confused or whatever, you can pose other very simple questions. What's going on? What is happening? but don't let your mind, don't let your cognitive thinking process answer it. And that's where the epiphanies come. That's where the wisdom arises. We're engaging that system and making it stronger. So that's one thing that this practice of metta is doing, it's allowing us to see more clearly with that intuitive awareness. The other thing it's doing is that it is strengthening these factors, these uh, forces in us of the paramis, of these incredibly positive qualities of metta and uh, upeka, and karuna and mudita as well. They're incredibly wholesome, positive qualities That we are intentionally, you know, plowing the seeds uh, in this field of our mind-body awareness and watering it and putting compost on it. You know, we're really paying a lot of attention. Pulling the weeds when we see the becoming and the floods of sensuality. You know, with kindness saying, I see you, Mara. I see you, of Romance. I see you, of Vendetta. <laughs> right? You know that we fall in love and fall in hate on retreat, right? Making up stories about the people around us. We just say, I see you, Mara. So that's what we do. Actually, Ajahn Suchitya had a beautiful way of saying how we are what it's doing when we strengthen our mindfulness and also work on, oh, here it is. He says, using the Four Noble Truths is a way out of ignorance, the way of transcendence, to really transcend belief that we are a separate being in need of more fossil fuels, in need of more stuff, in need of this and that. And to um, transcend the ignorance of um, being separate. You know, all of that. And it turns the mind's intention towards wholesomeness. This is why we develop the paramis. he says. Building the paramis is a temple from whose vantage point we can investigate the floods. The Paramis and Sati are a vantage point where we can see the floods more clearly and just uproot those asawas, uproot those, you know, deeply held delusions and ignorance that are really the source of our suffering. And that's how we need to contend with our own suffering. I love the way that he was talking about blame, too. He talked about blame a lot. And I'm really good at blame. You know, I create whole identities around my victimhood and around all of that. And you know, that's interesting to see the roots of maybe some of the Asawas, but That's not going to be what... Blaming someone else and expecting anything external to fix this problem, it's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It happens right here. The transformation is right here. And that doesn't mean that we don't fight the good fight and go out and try to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion at the community level or social level. We absolutely do that. And we offer uh, solace and support and love to people who are suffering right in front of us. Absolutely. But our the place where we uproot ignorance and we Find contentment is right here. Right here. We do that by exactly what we're doing here. Even if you don't think any of it's working, even if you're having a terrible time, even if you're wondering what is going on, you are absolutely doing it. What you're doing is so wholesome, so productive of positive merit. It is so fabulous. And it means that you all had pretty darn good karma to have made it here. You know, there's something special. You've probably also been doing this for multiple lifetimes, that you even made it here and that your intention is to do this. So love yourself for that. Reflect on that. Reflect on your goodness. That's a good thing. When you reflect on your goodness and what you're doing right, that's like putting compost on it. That's like saying, yeah, that's a good thing. I want to do that more. That's really validating it and making it stronger. And when you have these feelings, you know, a lot of people think we get blessed, some of us get blissed out doing this, meditation and we think, oh, I don't want to get attached to the bliss. I don't want to get attached to the bliss. You know, the Buddha and some of our most, the teachers who are really trying to figure out what the Buddha taught about meditation, you know, Joseph, my teacher, and the Venerable Inalya, specifically both of them, talk at length about the difference between worldly pleasure and unworldly pleasure. There's a big distinction between those two. Worldly pleasure and unworldly pleasure. And you're sitting here on your own. If you get any unworldly pleasure from meditation, that's really wholesome. Don't be afraid to actually even make that your anchor of your attention for a while. Because when things are really pleasant, we tend to be able to stay with them longer, right? Don't be afraid to make that your anchor for a while and just continue the intention for deep love while that is your anchor. You know, oftentimes, and maybe that sensation is actually a uh, manifestation of that deep love and that deep uh, intention. So it's absolutely fine. We're supposed to savor it. We're supposed to really know how it feels, that pleasure. Because when we know how it feels and when we savor it, sometimes we can even call it up when we need it. We can even call it up. I had an experience yesterday where I was feeling a lot of self-doubt huge amount of self-doubt, like, what were they thinking Let me te- letting me teach the Dhamma? What were they thinking? I was having so much self-doubt. And then I went back and I said, you know, I need a little equanimity. So I sat and did equanimity practice. Just the phrases, may I accept things just as they are. May I be undisturbed by the coming and going of approval. And it was like, It was magic. Like, just after a little bit of time, it was like praise and blame, fame and disrepute. That is the first noble truth. And yeah, so... There was so much more resilience there. And that came from here. It didn't come from externally somebody saying, oh no, Bonnie, you're great. Or, you know, it didn't come from any of that. It can't come from that. It comes from, you know, building up positive qualities here. You know, I like to very directly say that the practice is cultivating. Cultivation and purification. We're purifying all of those asawas, the floods of sense, desire, and the belief that that is happiness. The floods of becoming and of views and ignorance. We're purifying that and cultivating clear seeing and the paramis. It's pretty simple. And those forces are battling it out. Ajahn Chah has this wonderful saying that those forces are battling it out. And pretty soon, there's a victor and it's all over. So, I want to thank you for your efforts. Regardless of whether they feel good or not, they're incredibly wholesome. And you're really nourishing this positive qualities and they're getting stronger and they will battle the floods you have to trust in that let go of wanting to see that just trust that that's what's happening effort is way better than success just keep practicing let's sit for a minute May all beings overcome the floods and see our true nature. See you all in half an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.